day. Well, hopefully you are in Matthew chapter 13, and we continue our look at our series entitled The Kingdom of Heaven. And today we begin the various parables that Jesus began with this sentence, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so we begin in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. Another parable that he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, do you not, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servants said to him, do, what, uh, do you want us to then go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time of the harvest, we'll say, we'll, the reapers, uh, say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them and bundle them to burn them, and but gather wheat into the barn. Throughout the Gospels, one of the manners in which Jesus taught was to explicitly set proper expectation in the minds of the people, but more specifically in the minds of the disciples. And Jesus knew that the Jewish people had a very specific idea of the beginning and the operation of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. This idea was derived inaccurately from various Old Testament passages that were interpreted improperly. And for 400 years, between the books of Matthew and Malachi, during that period of silence when God had not allowed a prophet to speak there in the nation of Israel, and the people waited in hopes and great hopes of their anticipated Messiah. The religious leaders over the course of those years, we discover through historical elements, began to paint a profile of the coming Messiah that would encourage the people during that time of silence. Sharing with them and telling them to wait patiently for when Messiah arrived, he would elevate Israel again to the zenith of its existence, as it were, under, the king, uh, under king David. And he would free them from the physical oppression of the various emperor, empires that controlled Israel at that point, from the Greeks then to the Romans. But when Jesus came, and all the signs and the prophecies of the Old Testament began to be fulfilled through his life. And as he spoke with one who has authority, and the people began to look at him and hail him as the coming Messiah, please understand that they did so with the anticipation 
set upon the expectation that they were given that in so doing, they would then see him enter into the throne room there in Jerusalem and begin to reign physically here on this earth again, vanquishing their enemies, releasing them from the physical occupation and oppression of the Roman Empire that they were currently contending with and bring the nation of Israel back to that zenith of existence once again. But though Jesus began His ministry with the words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the form of that kingdom was unlike the current expectation of the people there in Israel. And as the disciples gathered to Him, Jesus knew that if He was going to be effective, and if they were going to be effective, He needed to substantiate a real expectation, a correct expectation in the minds and the hearts of His disciples. These parables do just that. These parables give the disciples an accurate picture of what the kingdom of heaven will look like in its beginning. And of course, in waiting in anticipation for the second coming of Jesus Christ, which then we believe Revelation chapter 20 indicates to us that He will then set His kingdom physically here upon this earth and reign for a thousand years in a period of time called the Millennial Kingdom. But it's very important to us, if we are properly going to interpret Scripture, to try to ascertain to the best of our ability the preconceived mindset of the people in whom he is speaking to. Because I believe that throughout the history of the church, one of the uh, terrible consequences of false teaching is that false teaching lead people to make false conclusions about God. Those false conclusions then lead to false expectation on what they can believe that they can anticipate God doing within their lives. And this sets many up for failure. This sets up many to become greatly discouraged when it appears that God hasn't been faithful to the faulty conclusion that was given to them. And yet you can see how this works. Even when we come to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, and Nathan, I'm going to need your help again. He's got all the control here today. It's pretty scary. When we come to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, as Jesus was a, uh, uh, just, uh, excuse me, when Jesus was now uh, going to once again ascend into heaven, the disciples asked him a question one more time. They knew their time with him was limited. And this is the question that they asked. This question, I believe, reveals the mindset that they were carrying at that time. And I believe that mindset was reflected to the mindset that they had all throughout the Gospels. Notice what he says here. As he says in verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
But notice verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? They were still hoping for his you know, ascension, not so much to heaven, but to the throne there in Jerusalem. This, of course, precipitated the argument that they uh, had while with him on who was going to sit at his right hand. Of course, even bringing in uh, an intermediary, their mom, to uh, petition on their behalf, asking, of course, let my son sit on your right and your left, and so forth. They were waiting, still at this time, for the anticipated arrival of the kingdom of God physically here on this earth. But of course, Jesus then answered when he heard this question, and he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all and, uh, Judah and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Not yet, guys. It's not coming yet. What's going to happen next is I'm going to send you into the world empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses on my behalf. And that's what continues today as we wait for His second coming. And so as He begins these parables, He begins to set a proper expectation in their minds and in their hearts, which of course by this time still hasn't fully come to pass. The internet can often be very misleading, can't it? Of course, you know, everything on the internet is true, right? I remember some time back when we were planning one of our church trips down to Kentucky to take a a group of people from our church to the uh, Creation Museum. And Don, who does a spectacular job at putting these things together for us, We wanted to find a hotel that would be comfortable for adults, but also accommodating to children, because we had a lot of children going on this particular trip. And so Don went through the various sites of the various hotels in the Kentucky area around (laughs) around the Creation Museum, and he found one, and the pictures were beautiful. Oh, the pool was luxury, luxurious, and the, you know, and it was indoors, so weather wasn't a factor, and the rooms looked really, really nice. And we looked at it, and we're like, "Oh, this is, you know, this is going to be perfect for us." Then we got there. Uh, well, their idea of running water in the rooms were leaking roofs. Uh, they decorated with black mold. Uh, it was so humid in the pool area that you couldn't tell when you were in the pool or outside of the pool. And Don and I were both like, holy cow, bait and switch. Were we misled by the pictures on the internet? We had a false expectation. And when we got there, we were, you know, on the, the whole way down there, of course, we're singing, you know, 33 bottles of Coke on the wall, you know, and all that, all the way down there. And then we got there and found out how wrong we actually were. 
how devastating a wrong expectation can be, but yet many Christians in America, when it comes to Christianity, are carrying false expectations due to faulty biblical teaching. And so Jesus knew that the disciples needed to be reminded of what they truly could expect. So we come to Matthew chapter 13. And as we have read the the parable itself in verses 24 through 30, in taking a class online through Dallas Theological Seminary, the professor said that he believes that no one should even try to attempt to interpret a parable of Jesus until they have studied the Bible for 30 years. The parables of Jesus have often been the bedrock of some of the most faulty teaching in the Christian church, often due to the fact that the interpreter tries to overcomplicate the meaning of the parable. So we began this morning by taking one that Jesus himself explains to us, okay? We can't go wrong with that. Jesus giving us the explanation for the parable itself. But as you look at the parable, you find in various, uh, undoubtedly you find that it is focusing on the wickedness of the uh, enemy of the people, sowing tares amongst the good seed in which the uh, individual had sowed in the field. And that really seems to be the emphasis of what Jesus is saying here. But I do believe that there's a lot of practicality that you and I can gain from this parable today. If you notice with me that Jesus goes on to explain this parable starting in verse 36. Please turn there with me if you will. Where Jesus himself gives us the interpretation of the parable. In verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the terrors of the field. They knew it was important, but they just didn't know what it meant. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, we often are discouraged from reading the Word of God because we feel as if we just don't know what it's truly trying to say. And maybe we read a passage like this and say, oh, how wonderful it would be if Jesus was just sitting right next to us and we could just say, hey, Jesus, I'm not getting this whole uh, Zechariah thing or Zephaniah. And it seems like Amos was, had a chip on his shoulder. What are you saying, Lord, through these things? But this is exactly one of the reasons that God has given us the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. And I believe, though Jesus isn't physically sitting next to you as you read the Word of God, if you prayerfully consider before reading to ask the Lord to show you, allowing the Spirit of God to bring you through the Word, showing you and helping you to interpret what the Word means. And it really becomes alive after reading the Word for several years, from Genesis to Revelation, I think all of it's important that God then starts to minister to your heart and pulling out various passages that say, oh, this sounds very similar to an Old Testament passage. And you know, Paul said that exact same thing in another letter in which he wrote. Uh, And and the book of Hebrew, we don't know who wrote that one per se, but you know, that's very similar to a lot of the Old Testament questions and the gospel questions that were being asked during the time of Jesus. 
the best way to interpret the Bible is always by using the Bible as the source of the interpretation. You can't go wrong. The other thing, may I encourage you, I, I, one of the books that I worked through was a book called How to Read and Study the Bible as a Scholar. And it, 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 it said a very interesting thing. It said that often we draw faulty conclusions and faulty teachings when we try to overcomplicate the Scriptures. I thought that was very wise. I personally believe that anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, walking with God and with the Spirit, can understand the Word of God. Everybody can. We just need to allow Him that opportunity to show us. In verse 37, Jesus then said, He answered and said to them, Now he who sows good seed is the Son of Man, a term for the Messiah found in the book of Daniel, referring undoubtedly to Himself. The field is the world, and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, but the terrors are the sons of the wicked one. There are many who interpret the parable of the wheat and the terrors in the manner that it is speaking of the church, and it is describing true Christians compared to false Christians, counterfeit Christians. But Jesus can't be any clearer that he's not speaking of the church, but he's speaking of the world here, throughout the world. In the anticipation of the coming Messiah, the Jewish people believed that once he came, and he came and then ascended to the throne there in Jerusalem, the Jewish people would be elevated to this place of position and prominence, and that the rest of the world will be, would be dealt with for their wickedness a separation of the righteous and the wicked. But Jesus seems to temper that by saying that the initial stages of the kingdom of God are going to be intermingled with those who are under the sway of the wicked one. That the kingdom of God immediately isn't going to be separated. Though separated in nature and in character, but then still existing side by side with those who are in the world. And so he's trying to help his disciples realize that I'm sending you out as sheep amongst the wolves. I'm sending you into this world and you and they are going to coexist in this world together, but you are going to be completely of differing nat uh, natures as individuals. This time, seed represents the people. This is one of the downfalls of misinterpreting parables when we believe that the same illustration always means the same thing each and every time that it is used. Seeds here mean people, but in our first parable of the sower of the seed, it meant the Word of God in Matthew and was also related to the gospel in the, in the gospel of Luke. So God can, or Jesus can use the same illustration, but have two different meanings associated with that illustration. So you've got to be a little careful, right? You can't just draw a, a conclusion that seed always means this and, and so forth. And so we must take that in consideration when we are interpreting parables that he can use varying interpretations uh, with the same uh, illustration. Verse 39. Now the enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares gathered and are burned in fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will be gathered out of His kingdom, uh, all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Remember, their anticipation was that the Messiah was going to do that physically when He came and established His kingdom here on this earth. But He now says, no, that's going to happen in the last days, that that judgment is going to occur and that separation is going to occur. That's going to happen then. So there will be a period of time between now and then that you have to prepare yourself for. That's what he's saying. And then instead of feeling that it is our job to uproot the wicked, or their job physically to uproot the wicked, as they would have done under the prescribed plan of the religious leaders in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus says, I'm going to send my angels to do that. Because we don't have the perception necessary to be able to do that accurately. So he's telling his disciples, that's not the job that you're going to be uh, sent into this world to do. You're not going to go and try to vanquish evil in and of yourself and to hold the wicked accountable and to uproot them. That's my job. I will do that. So what was the job that he was preparing the disciples to do? That's exactly what he tells them in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. I'm sending you into the world not to be judges and executioners of wicked, of the wicked, but witnesses to the wicked. That's what I'm sending you into the world to do. That through your life and through the gospel that you've been equipped with and the power of the Holy Spirit, those individuals might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Interesting, interesting consideration. That's what he's preparing his people for. There's going to be a delay between the true physical kingdom of the Messiah and its inauguration that began at his first coming. And he's preparing them for just that. Verse 42. And those who are gathered and those who have practiced lawlessness, verse 42, and they will be cast into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Again, this is a this is a term that Jesus uses often to describe the torment of hell. And where does he get it from? Well, one historian pulls out a very interesting but troubling illustration. In Jerusalem, there was an area outside the wall of Jerusalem called Gehenna where the trash was burnt, but also the bodies of those who had been executed by the Romans to dispose of their bodies. They weren't buried, they were just burned and so forth after their apparent execution. The Romans were brutal in their treatment of those in whom they conquered. And one historian wrote that when the Romans would crucify someone and didn't want to wait until they were fully dead, they took them off the cross and threw them into this burning fire alive. Terrifying. I'm sorry to put that image in your mind. 
and you would hear the cries of those people. And Jesus uses this illustration to explain the torment of hell. In verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And he who has an ear, let him hear. This is alluding back to the Old Testament passages that they would have been very familiar with in Daniel chapter 2, verse 3. When Daniel wrote, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. And those who will be consumed, it sounds like the prophecy of Zephaniah in Zephaniah 1.3. I will consume man and beast, Zephaniah writes, of God. I will consume the birds of heaven, of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along uh, with the wicked. I will cut man off from the face of the land, says the Lord. That prophecy of Zephaniah is what the religious leaders used to show that the Jewish people would be the instrument of judgment and execution upon the wicked Gentile nations around them. But Jesus now changes that entire expectation and says, No, it will not be you. For I will send you into the world as witnesses on my behalf to seek and to save those who are lost. I will take care of the judgment. I will take care of the execution of that judgment at my second coming. And that's exactly what you see John write in John chapter, uh, Revelation 19, 20, and 21. That's exactly what we see happening. So the application for the disciples in the immediate setting, this parable allowed them once again to establish a proper expectation of what was coming next. It allowed them to see that there was going to be time, and in their lifetime, the physical kingdom of God was not going to be present on this earth. But they were going to be used as instruments. Correcting that expectation was something was a high priority to Jesus. And often you will find throughout the Gospels, all four of them, not just contained in the synoptics, but in all four of them, you find that Jesus is correcting over and over and over again faulty thinking to help his people and to prepare his people for what is coming next. Secondly, and I think this is important, the Jewish people needed to know that there are truly, in God's eyes, only two kingdoms on this, in this world. Though we have various nations various nationalities and languages. In the mind of God, there are truly only two kingdoms. One, the kingdom of light, where Christ reigns on His Father's behalf. And the other, the kingdom of this world, that is ruled by the ruler of this world, the devil himself. When you read the Bible in that way, it is eye-opening. It allows you to move away from your immediate national contextualization of the Scriptures and see things in a greater light and in a bigger picture. That's exactly what they needed to do. 
And as the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness occupy this earth at the same time, it will be difficult for them to identify immediately which is which. And one of the dangers of terror in the wheat field, now again, I am not speaking as one who is agriculturally inclined. Growing up in the suburb of Schaumburg uh, and uh, Elk Grove, I didn't really have any uh, need to learn agriculture. Um, I cut the grass. I don't know if that counts. I uh, put down fertilizer because apparently the pretty yellow flowers are, are weeds, you know. And then yet people go out and buy yellow flowers and plant them in their garden. We got them for free. What do you need to go and spend the money for? Uh, But in the Bible, sowing tares among the wheat was a military tactic. And it was actually prohibited by Roman law. A neighbor couldn't just spitefully do it to his next door neighbor because the consequences were devastating. The terror that that they speak of biblically would, of course, suffocate out the real wheat. And you couldn't tell as each were growing side by side until the very end, one had a head on the top of it and one did not. But while they were growing, you couldn't really tell one from the other. One had fruit, the other one did not. But the fruit of the terror of biblical uh, society was actually poisonous and detrimental. Military uses it. They send spies into their enemies' lands and poison their fields in hopes of starving them out to make the conquest even easier. People began to do it in the, in the Roman Empire, and so the Romans prohibit that through law, and they could be uh, punished for doing so. But eventually, we will know them by their fruit. It sounds very interesting. And at the very end, it will be God and the angel's job to separate those who are truly his from those who are truly not. It's not our job, that's his job. But to you and I today, why do we read such a parable? Many people today go to church and they dismiss a church that they don't believe is relevant for them today. I think that's a completely faulty thought and it's it's a very faulty argument because I believe all the Bible is relevant. So we just need to wait on God to show us the relevance that's contained within it. But first, let us understand that asking the question or posing the idea that there are two kingdoms then causes us and provokes us to ask the question, which kingdom are are we of? Are we of the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God through Christ? But there's another dynamic truth to this that we can learn by the understanding that there are two kingdoms and these kingdoms are governed by two very opposite individuals christ and satan thinking in the terms of two kingdoms one ruled by the devil one ruled by jesus the words of paul make all the more sense when you read them in ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 13 Notice what Paul says here, and I think this is a good reminder for us today. Knowing that there are only two kingdoms, notice what Paul says here. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wilds of the devil. Very interesting, and I'm so glad that he includes this next verse, verse 12. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Now more than ever, we need to be reminded that people who differ with us ideologically, people who are opposite than us, who do not carry a biblical worldview, they are not our enemy, okay? They are not our enemy. Paul makes it abundantly clear it's the forces behind them that are truly our enemy. The principalities and the powers and so forth. It is these that we wrestle against and not flesh and blood. We need to see them as individuals blinded by Satan and in need of salvation. And though their ideas may be incredibly offensive to us, they personally are not our enemy. It is the forces working behind them that are truly our enemy. And this is why we must prepare ourselves not only with the whole armor of God, but as Paul concludes that, more importantly, prayer. We need to be praying for these people. Our country is more divided than it has ever been before, right? It's divided by ideologies, those who carry biblical worldviews and everyone else who doesn't. But those people who don't are not our enemies, and we cannot treat them as such. Because you know what? If we weren't saved, we'd probably be in the same place that they are today. And we know they have succumbed and accepted the lies of this world. And those lies are truly formulating false conclusions and leading to very false expectations. And the way of this broad path, as Jesus told us very clearly in His Word, ends in destruction. We are on a recon mission to seek and to save as Jesus began to do those who are lost and be witnesses for Jesus Christ at this time. Secondly, like the disciples, many Christians in America have adopted the wrong expectations concerning the kingdom of God. Over the years, I've heard the gospel presented to people to make it more acceptable, more palatable. And in the light of that presentation... Instead of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and His purity and its integrity, we have modified it. We have packaged it and marketed it in a way that says you need to do this to gain all the benefits of Christianity. We never talk about sin. We never talk about persecution or the hatred that the world is going to show us. We tell them all of the wonderful things that they can expect, but yet never remind them of the difficulties. And many people have come to Christ through those, that gospel. And they've entered Christianity through that door. And now as the world is collapsing around them and changing around them, and that Christianity is no longer favored in this country as it once were, they're stumbling and they're having difficulties and they're looking around and saying, listen, I didn't sign up for this, right? One of the greatest consequences, and if I could use that word, or blessings of reading the entire Bible is that you get a proper expectation set for you. 
Why did Jesus say to us, you'll be hated as I was hated? Why did Jesus say that you will be persecuted as I was persecuted? Why do we think that the Constitution of America is going to permanently protect us from all of those things when our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are experiencing it every single day? Too often we've accepted these things and formulated faulty expectations and now are, re- are, are living the consequences of those. We've made Christianity a consumer faith in America. It's all about me. It's become a supplement like a vitamin that I take once a day. We treat the Word of God often as a fortune cookie, you know, hoping that God will give us some insight for that particular day and some kind of, you know, word of encouragement uh, accordingly and so forth. But it all is based around me and it's all based around how it benefits me without any, any idea of the primary characteristic of Christianity when Jesus said, deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow after me. Those don't just apply to the Jewish people that he was speaking to 2,000 years ago. It applies to every Christian, every individual that follows Christ from that point on. But the idea of judgment should have a twofold impact upon our lives. The coming of Jesus Christ is a great source of encouragement for the believer in Jesus Christ. John also writes to us that it is the source of asking ourselves to get our hearts right before God, purifying ourselves, separating ourselves from the things of the world and the influences of this world, and being sold out as a witness empowered by the Spirit for Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, it's a reminder that time is limited. And each and every one of us, I know here for certain, has a loved one that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And if the rapture were to occur tomorrow, if Christ would return seven years from now, there would be those who we love that would not experience the salvation of Jesus Christ because they have rejected Christ. There's an urgency. Many of you are praying for my dad, and I thank you for it. Last week, he received a very, very troubling blood uh, test result, blood test result. On Friday, hospice came, and they evaluated him. And once again, the grace of God set, you know, stepped in, and they said he is not ready just yet for hospice. 92 years old. He's not ready yet. I spent all day Thursday with him. I knew that he wasn't ready for hospice after Thursday because he was still uh, reminding me uh, of, well, just the fact that I'm his son and I'm here to serve him um, and so forth. I love my dad, but I've been praying earnestly for my dad to receive Jesus Christ. And once again, God has showed me that his grace is more powerful than anything on this earth And you know what? I'm confident that my dad will confess Christ before dying. I'm confident of that. But you and I need to reevaluate what our role here on this earth in this time. Because Paul wrote, and we'll close with this. Paul wrote when he said, in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, he told the, 
the Corinthian church, then comes the end when he, that is Christ, will deliver the kingdom of God the Fa- to God the Father when he puts all end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign, that is Christ, until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he's putting all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is one of the most important passages concerning eschatology, the study of the last days. Jesus Christ will bring all things under his authority, and when doing so, he will bring it then to the Father, and once again the world will be restored as God originally intended it when he first created it, and death will be vanquished, and you read those beautiful words in Revelation 21 of the new heaven and the new earth that is yet to come. Many of us were greatly discouraged last year because we saw the political landscaping change. We didn't know how to receive it and how to take it. But I will tell you, rarely in church history have we seen a revival break out in the midst of prosperity. But often, when persecution comes, as they try more desperately each and every day to stop the work of God here on this earth, God has a tendency to say, not so fast. And some of the greatest revivals occurred when the church was being persecuted. Let me tell you this. I'm going to tell you a little secret. The world has exhausted it, exhausted its wisdom and its intelligence. People are beginning to realize that the world does not have the answers that they are looking for. But you know what? You do. You do. Because you know the living God who made all things. And though it may get difficult as we go forward, let us remember that we are not alone in this, that God is with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's given us His Word that we may know and properly expect what is to come next. But He's also given us the Holy Spirit to stand within His power to be witnesses for Him to all of those who are in darkness. And let's pray that by this time next year, those people that we've been praying for earnestly will have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's all His work. He's just asking us to be witnesses. We can't save anyone. It's a work of God. But I'll tell you this, God is all for saving people. He went to the greatest extent by sending His only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever shall believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life.